Let's turn in our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. You guys are familiar with Jeremiah 29:11, for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Not many people know this about Jeremiah, but there's actually a whole book, not just that one verse. That one verse means very little if you don't understand why it's being given. This morning I want us to see why God gave that word to Jeremiah. I know the plans I have for you. They're not to harm you. It's not evil. It's to prosper you. It's to bless you. The overwhelming theme of Jeremiah is judgment. Harsh, heavy judgment. But with all the prophets, there's this undercurrent that takes over. It's not just that there is judgment, but there is restoration and reconciliation promised. And boy, is it ever in chapter 31. Jeremiah anticipates the kingdom of Christ, the victorious king that has conquered, that is conquering, and will conquer. He lays that out not only in Jeremiah 31, but as you read the entirety of the book and you hear the ebbs and flows of his argument, you see that he is pointing to this Christ, this kingdom, and this feature of the kingdom. This God who was and is and is to come. Helps us to understand what Jeremiah is, is living in. Israel's been in turmoil for nearly a hundred years before Jeremiah is even born. The great kingdom of Assyria is pressing down on the people of Israel. If you'll recall, after Solomon's death, the kingdom is split in two. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom immediately goes into rampant, intentional, blatant idolatry. And they are judged quickly. Assyria comes in and conquers. But when we look at the nature of conquest, we need to understand that Assyria didn't just come in and dominate you. It was a methodical, three-stage conquest. Assyria would come into the land and, and they would... Uh, a, a, a complete victory over the people, but they didn't just uh, subjugate them immediately under an iron fist. What they would do is they would, they would conquer you and make you a vassal state, a tribute state. So that now everything you did, you did for Assyria. You got to keep your king, you got to keep your royal court, but they all had to give tribute to Assyria now. And they did that all the while sending Assyrian nationals into the occupied territory to undercut any idea of rebellion. 
But they knew that eventually there would be rebellion. The king that had remained and the court that had remained would think, why are we doing this? Why are we paying tribute to Assyria? This is our money. We're working for it. And so they would rebel. And when that rebellion came, Assyria would take, the, take to the next stage and clamp down a little more. And they would replace the king and give a new ruler, an Assyria-friendly ruler. Maybe an Assyria-friendly court. But there was more restriction in the territory, more a conquest, more of an iron fist as they flood more and more Assyrian nationals into the region. And then when there was rebellion again, as there inevitably was, Assyria would replace all leadership in a brutal execution and replace them entirely with Assyrian loyalists, Assyrian nationals. Now there was absolute subjection. There was no longer any original identity. It was Assyrian identity. Assyria was a nation that had conquered, is conquering, and will conquer. That was the overwhelming dread of the people. Everyone knew that Assyria was coming, and Assyria was going to overcome you and overwhelm you, and then like a boa constrictor, they were going to slowly squeeze you out until you were absolutely and completely conquered. Assyria was a machine that could not be stopped. Their kingdom spread throughout the Middle East. In 722, they conquered the north, but by 698, they had completely overtaken the northern kingdom. And now they're looking into the southern kingdom. By the time Jeremiah is born in 639, Judah, the southern kingdom, is already a vassal state. They're already a tribute state. They've already been conquered. There's already been rebellion. There's all been, already been that first constriction from the boa. Everything is tense. Jeremiah is born in 639 and 11 years later, Josiah becomes king and begins his reforms. And Jeremiah begins his ministry shortly after. What happens though is that Assyria begins to move too far beyond their borders. They try to go into Egypt, and they can't sustain Egypt. They can conquer it, but they can't keep it. But the, the leadership wants Egypt. And they go too far and extend too much, and they begin to decay from within. At this point, Babylon routes everything north of Jerusalem and begins to press in and there are the new world power by 615 no no longer does anyone care about Assyria they're concerned about Babylon that's the picture that's the world that Jeremiah is living in he's living in a world of political chaos of conquest and greater conquest Judah is this vassal state that at, by this time has been reduced to little more than the city of Jerusalem. When we talk about 
Israel and the, and the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. We think of larger tracts of land, but now, now Judah, when you hear the kingdom of Judah, by the time Jeremiah comes along, you need to think of Jerusalem. And that's it. That's all that's left. That's all that's theirs. Everything else is completely overran. And because Jerusalem was all that stood, the people thought that God had particularly blessed that city. And that city was what they had to hold on to. So the language of the people was built more around defending and preserving the city of Jerusalem than defending and preserving the law of God. And it led to their destruction. Judah was a wicked place, full of idolatry, full of rebellion. And you think they would have learned. Jeremiah 3, you see that in verse 6. Jeremiah, uh, the Lord speaks and he says, uh, Didn't you see what happened to the north? You would think that you would learn. You would think that you would have saw the rebellion and the idolatry of the north and you would have repented. But you didn't. So here comes the judgment. Throughout this book, you see judgment with a promise of hope. Judgment and then a promise of hope. And we get to 31, and there is this great promise. Let's read, beginning in verse 31 of chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon, and the stars for light by night. Who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord, from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hill Garib, and shall then turn to Goa, the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes, and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron, to the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up, or overthrown any more forever. Jeremiah's promise of the new covenant. Isn't that amazing? Amen? That's good stuff. We're going to race through it. This new covenant. 
I want to just point out a few things in those first few verses. First is that God is uniting that which is divided. Who's this covenant for? I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. What you tore apart with idolatry and rebellion and wickedness, I am uniting in this new covenant. I am reuniting the two kingdoms. There is one kingdom. There's a sharp divide between Israel and Judah, and no longer shall there be a division. There shall be one kingdom. But you need to understand, this is, this is heavy, because Judah looked with absolute disgust to the northern kingdom. And they were just wicked, vile people. How could anyone live so corrupt in their lives? Even though Judah did the exact same thing. They were the exact same, but they looked down upon the northern kingdom. It's kind of like us when we make jokes about Kentucky or Alabama and the lack of intelligence in those. Tennessee is the same thing, right? We make the, the country hick joke about uh, Mississippi, and then we forget that we live in Maynardville. <laughs> it's the same. There was this great divide, though, and God says, I'm going to unite that again. There is no division in this new covenant. There is one nation. There is one people. There is a great internalization that takes place. I'm going to write the law on your heart. Read through the Kings and the Chronicles and see the, the narrative of the law and how it's lost and it's hidden and it's forgotten. Oh, look, what's this? Not anymore. Now, the law is going to be written on your heart. Jeremiah is saying this, remember, Jeremiah is saying this shortly after Josiah gets the law and says, Hey, maybe we should do these things. And God says, no, I'm going to write this on your heart. I am going to forgive your sin. I am going to remember it no more. I'm not going to hold it to you any longer. That's the nature of the new covenant. So when we read those first five verses or so, we see this great internalization. And we can track with that. But what happens in verse 35 is, is he gives two hypotheticals. Two hypothetical situations that bring the original reader back to thinking of the people of God through the lens of national Israel. Listen to what he says. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Okay, this is the God who controls everything. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Oh, so this new covenant is about the nation of Israel. It's clear. He's bringing it back to national Israel. The second hypothetical. If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off or cast all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. So if you can measure all the sky, 
and all the depths below, and you can know everything about every square inch, and you can measure all of that, then, yep, that's when I'm going to cast them off. It's very clear. No, I'm bringing this back to a national mindset. So you can see the nation of Israel. And so all the dispensationalists are like freaking out right now. See, it's all about national Israel. We got to rebuild that temple, right? Nah, nah. There's something more here. There's something better here. What God does is he guides the mind here. I'm giving you this new covenant. I'm going to write the law on your heart. I'm going to forgive your sin. You're going to have the Spirit of God inside you. And then he brings it to the nation. So it's not just about you, the individual. There is something greater here than just individual covenant relationship. American churches everywhere are just dying at that thought. There's, there's more to it than just you and your best friend, Jesus. And I want us to see what that is. All right, so our pace this morning, we went from verse 31 to 37 in about six minutes. Let's see if we can keep that up, okay? We're going to bear down on these last four verses. This is what I want to spend all of our time on this morning. Because I think this shows us the uh, intent of this covenant. He talks about the new city. He brings us, he brings the reader, he brings the hearer back to this mindset of national Israel. And he's got their attention. Okay, he's never going to cast away the nation of Israel. He's never going to cast aside the offspring of Israel. Two, two ways of saying the same thing, but it gives us a great deal of depth. I'm not giving away this nation, this people. And then he brings it even to an even more narrow focus. From uh, the wide scope of the individual to the, wide, to the less wide view of the nation to the very centered picture of the new city. So he's going to describe the new city. Alright? Alright, so let's look. Behold... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Now, when you read the prophetic language, you need to understand that when you see behold, that's the same as the the verily, verily, truly I say to you. In the south, that would be, hey, dummy, pay attention. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. You need to hear this. When the city shall be rebuilt from the Lord, or for the Lord, from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hill Garib, and shall then turn to Goa, the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron, to the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall, be not, shall not be plucked up forever or overthrown anymore. Um, if you're anything like me, you have a, just a clear picture of what's being described right now, right? You can get every, every bit around the, the horse gates and the, and the Tower of Hananel. You probably have a poster of the Tower of Hananel in your room somewhere. Or maybe not. So maybe it's beneficial for us to think through what is being described here. There are seven boundary markers. This is, these are intended to be boundary markers. They're not really boundaries, but they're described and defined as boundary markers. So let's look at them, okay? The first and second boundary markers. You have the Tower of Hananel and the Corner Gate. Now I have provided you a very detailed picture of the walls of Jerusalem. I want you to see what you're looking at here, okay? At the very north part of that picture is the Tower of Hananel. Okay? 
It sits adjacent to the fish gate. Then to the left of that is the corner gate. Now how many of you had that picture in your mind before you looked at that? We, we, listen, we don't think like this. The, the original hearer of this immediately knows, okay, this is what we're looking at. And we don't have any clue because we're not that old. So it helps us to understand just by looking at the visuals here. I'm just going to walk through these places. But what you need to know is you've got the, the border drawn. Okay? You've got the Tower of Hananel. And then you go eastward, you go clockwise, and you come to the last gate before the Tower of Hananel. You say, well, the fish gate is the last gate. Well, the Tower of Hananel is on the fish gate. So you're drawing from start to last the boundary markers of Jerusalem. The third and fourth boundary markers are the hill Garib and Goa. We know a lot about these two locations. A lot of disagreement as to where they belong, where they're located, how do we find them. This is one of those times where uh, the meaning of the name helps us. That's not always true. It doesn't always help us. You can get into trouble there by assigning too much meaning to the name of a place, especially when that's not warranted. Uh, take, for example, uh, Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Who knows what Bethlehem means? Anybody? Not you, Matt. Anybody else? House of bread. It means the house of bread. All right, so we could, we could come to the name Bethlehem in a text and we could say, see, this means house of bread. And so this was the bakery hub of Jerusalem. If Emily were an ancient Near Eastern Israelite woman, she would get her materials from Bethlehem. We could come to some conclusion like that. And you can see that. That's, that's absurd. That's ludicrous. But that's the, that's the trouble you can get into if you take the meaning of a name and you assign too much weight to it in the wrong context. But I want to I argue that this context forces us to draw from the meaning of the name in order to understand what's being said. I argue that because this is prophetic language. This is a prophetic work. And so when you look at prophecy, you have to understand that it uses highly figurative language, highly symbolic language, and it is intentionally, intentionally trying to get you to see things through symbols, through illusions. So when we come to this place and we don't really know a lot, and it's not that you and I don't know a lot because, you know, we just established we don't know what the Tower of Hananel is or the Corner Gate is, but it's not just because we're ignorant of ancient Near Eastern uh, geography, but you read Jewish writings and they're not sure where these places are. But we know what they mean. For example, Garib. Garib means to scrape. All right. Uh, it was uh, likely the home of a leper colony. Where it was, no clue. We don't really have an idea. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But it's the home of a leper colony. This is, this is a place for the, where the unclean go. When you cast people out of the city, because of they have a leprous growth, you are going to send them to a place like Garib. You look at uh, Goa. Goa is a place that it, it means toil and struggle. Now, you tell me, we're reading prophetic language, and we're talking about 
God establishing a new covenant where he makes unclean people clean and he overcomes the difficulty of idolatry. And we come to two uh, locations. We don't really know where they are, but they just happen to mean unclean and toil. You see how we made that dramatic leap to placing meaning and weight on the names of the places? That's not a leap. That's a contextual argument. So the third and fourth boundary markers are two locations that describe uh, the nature of the people, the nature of something that God is doing. When you get to the fifth boundary marker, you have the the valley of dead bodies. Or I like the uh, older translations better here, uh, the valley of carcasses. Listen, the valley of dead bodies is very vivid, but there's something extra vivid about the valley of carcasses, right? Most likely this is the valley of Hinnom, where they sacrificed idols. So Baal, Asherah, Molech, this happened in the southern portion of the city. If you look on your map, it's below the city walls to the south. And this is where the, the, the primary center of Baal or of pagan worship was, idolatrous worship was. Most people believe that this is also the site of Gehenna. That, that place that burns because you had uh, all of the off, uh, off uh, cuts, the, the uh, leftovers of the sacrifices. And I don't know if you know this, but false gods don't consume their sacrifices. So they had to go somewhere and so they would throw them into the fire at Gehenna. Now pay attention to what's happening. These are the boundaries of the new city. Tower of Hananel, to the corner gate, to Garab, to Goa, to the Valley of Dead Bodies. You get to the sixth boundary marker, the Brook Kidron. The Brook Kidron is is a place of judgment. Uh, You can do a a basic word search in Bible Gateway or, uh, you know, if you still use a paper concordance, you can look up Kidron and you'll find that every instance, not most, every instance where the Brook Kidron or the fields of Kidron are referenced, it's a reference of judgment. It's where Israel took things devoted to destruction to be destroyed. David uh, flees in 2 Samuel 15. This is the closest thing that is not a, uh, a judgment of destruction, but it is an act of judgment. And when you read 2 Samuel 15, you see that David leaves. And as he leaves, he crosses the brook Kidron and the people weep because they recognize it as a judgment on Jerusalem that David is leaving. Asa cuts down idols in 1 Kings 15 and he takes them to the brook Kidron and burns them and destroys them. The Asherah from the temple of the Lord are taken in 2 Kings 23. They're taken and removed and they're taken to the brook Kidron to be destroyed. This is a place of judgment. You get to the seventh boundary marker, the horse gate. This is the gate where the king would drive his horses into battle. So as as a battle would commence, as war was declared, it's here that the beginning of the war, the beginning of the battle would uh, ceremonially commence. The king would mount his horses and drive them out of the east gate. That's an impressive city, isn't it? Not really. I mean, when you interpret these verses in a 
woodenly literal fashion that says that he's talking about expanding the walls of the city. This is a pretty sad picture. I mean, think of the context. God's saying to Israel, I know that you have been crushed by Assyria, and now I'm telling you that Babylon is going to finish the job. They're not only going to finish the job, I'm telling you, you guys need to go ahead and plant some gardens and some vineyards when you get to Babylon, because you're going to be there a while. Like, you're done, all right? But I've got great hope for you. I'm going to expand the city. Look at the language. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt. It shall be rebuilt from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And what's he say next? And the measuring line shall go out further still. All right, so here's the boundary that you know. This is what you're used to. I'm going to make it even bigger, y'all. And then he describes this. Look there on your sheet. And you'll see kind of up toward the uh, uh, middle of the page, Garab in question marks, right? You see it? And then over to the west of the walls is, is Goa. That's not a very large expansion, is it? Every other expansion takes place around the city walls. That's like saying, y'all, we are going to expand Mainerville. Mainerville is going to be bigger than anything you've ever thought you could imagine. We're going to expand all the way into Tazewell. Well, New Tazewell. All right, we're just going to go to Deroyal. That's it. You're, you're like, well, that's, that's nothing. And if all we're talking about is we're going to expand the city walls to a mystery leper colony in the north and a hill that is so treacherous they're like what are we going to name this place I don't know how about struggle toil that's not prime real estate no one's looking at that saying oh we need that hill no there's something more here there's a better way to read these verses, a way that is more consistent with the whole of Jeremiah's prophetic ministry, a way that explains the meaning of the boundary markers and helps us understand what is so good about this covenant and what is so blessed about these markers. So let's take a look at these markers again, okay? There are seven of them. That should immediately, reading prophetic language, that should immediately trigger your, your uh, intellect to say, oh, hold on, something's happening here. There are seven? That doesn't happen by accident. There are seven. There's something, something perfect is being described. Something uh, complete is being foretold here. So what's happening? We get to the, let's look again at the Tower of Hananel and the corner gate. What, what is being said here? Remember, you look on your map, it's just a circle of the walls. That's it. What I believe Jeremiah is saying, what, what the Lord is saying through Jeremiah, is that the kingdom is going to expand. It's going to expand and it's going to overcome. And you have no idea how great it's going to be. Let me show you. Let me show you. I'm going to start by telling you, I'm going to internalize this covenant. I'm going to write my law on your heart. I'm going to remember your sins no more. I am going to forgive and redeem. And this covenant, this covenant is an eternal covenant. 
with my people that I have called aside. I use the language of national Israel because I want you to understand that I'm speaking of a covenant people, not a covenant person, a covenant people that I am calling to myself. And it is going to expand. This kingdom is going to grow and it's going to overcome. So when he says he marks out the tower of Hananel and the corner gate and he draws the wall of Jerusalem that every single Israelite would have recognized and understood. He's telling them that the kingdom will expand and overcome the limitations of a nation state. This this is more than just a city with walls. It will extend beyond the walls of Jerusalem. And everyone that hears that, everyone that uh, reads this from Jeremiah would immediately have said, so you're telling me that in this new covenant, we're going to the Gentiles? That's what you're saying? Because remember, Judah, the kingdom of Judah is now reduced to just this city. And they ain't saying, oh, no, no, no. This covenant is going out and it's going to be extended beyond the walls of this city. It's for the nations. And that's impressive. I mean, you, you think of that. That's a, that's, a, that's a wonderful thing. But he gives so little attention to these two landmarks. Because he's pointing to something greater. We look at the second, uh, or the, the next landmark. The hill Garab. Remember, the hill Garib, the, the Garib means to scrape. It's a leper colony. It's a place for unclean things. Because he's saying that the measuring line will extend even further. Even to the hill Garib. That place you don't want to go because it's unclean. Because when you touch it, you become unclean. You need to understand just how serious this is. Remember, unclean does not mean unholy. It just means that you cannot go into uh, the, the, the temple. Unclean does not mean sin. Unclean does mean unholy. Sorry. Uh, unclean doesn't mean sinful. It means that you're unclean and a- unable to go into the temple. Unable to offer sacrifices to your God. Unable to participate in the daily rhythms of life because you're unclean. And now you've got to go through ritualistic cleansing. So no one goes to the hill Garab. No one wants to go over there. But the kingdom that God is describing will expand and overcome that which is unclean. Is that not what we see Jesus doing over and over again? In Matthew 8, he touches a leper. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, can you make me clean? What's Jesus do in that passage? Does he say, whoa, hold on, hold on. Listen, I can do this, but you got to stay back, right? No, he does the unthinkable. He goes up and he touches the leper. And the leper becomes clean. Jesus doesn't become unclean. The leper becomes clean. That's the nature of this new covenant. And it's not just that one instance. The woman with the issue of blood was unclean. No one could go near her. No one wanted anything to do with her. She was ostracized. The fact that she was in the crowd to push in to touch Jesus' garment was illegal. She was required by law to scream, not say, not declare, but to scream, unclean, I'm unclean, because it was the height of disregard. 
for your brothers and sisters to be unclean and not let them know. And yet she comes in and she touches the hem of Jesus' garment. She becomes clean. He doesn't become unclean. Because in the new covenant, he makes the unclean clean. Jesus touched dead people. The priests, when you read through Leviticus, the priests are not even allowed to go and bury their loved ones while they're on duty because it makes them unclean and they can't perform their rights and responsibilities. It even says, your mother and your father, don't touch them. Don't go to the funeral. Jesus touches dead people. And now you know the theme, right? He's not unclean. They're clean. And they live. He declares all foods clean. Jesus comes and establishes this kingdom, this covenant, and he makes the unclean clean. He conquers the hill Garib. This kingdom is going to expand. It's going to expand beyond the walls, beyond the gates of Hananel and the corner gate. It's going to go on to Garib, and it's going to conquer the unclean. That's the covenant under which you and I live. This gets better and better, though. Let's look at the next marker. Goa. Goa. The kingdom now is faced with this this Goa, this toil and this difficulty. Jeremiah is saying, no, the, the kingdom will expand and overcome toil and difficulty. Matthew 11. What does Jesus say? Verse 28. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's not a, it's not a conquering of the toil and struggle that comes with the fall of uh, Thorns and thistles and sweat and pain. No, it's not that toil and struggle. It's the toil and struggle of striving to meet the expectation that you can never meet. Coming to Jesus, coming into this new kingdom, this new covenant. He conquers the toil and the difficulty of a self-righteous life. Striving for perfection that cannot be attained. But there's more. Goa, again, we don't really know where it is, but this one, we, we think we know where it is. Just to the west of the city. Look at your map there. Just to the west of the city, there's a hill. That is difficult. It's the hill that became known as the place of the skull, Golgotha. Do we know that this is where Goa is? We don't. Full disclosure, we don't. But it sure does make a lot of sense that this is the place where toil and difficulty were overcome and conquered. 
whether it is or is not Golgotha, Christ did overcome and conquer the toil and difficulty on the cross. This is a wonderful picture. You see, Jeremiah is doing something here, right? He's doing something. He's showing the, the beauty and the majesty and the extent of this covenant. And it just keeps getting better. He turns his attention to the valley of carcasses. Where all the dead bodies of the sacrifices to idols are. Just so we get a picture here of how grotesque this place is. You're thinking um, sacrifices to idols. And so you're thinking bulls and goats and sheep and all these different animals. The the heads and the, the bones and the skins. But you're forgetting one. Here's where they worshipped Molech as well. In case you've forgotten how the ancients worshipped Molech, they would have a statue in which Molech's hands were, uh, were placed out like this and, and the furnace would heat Molech's hands and you would put your child on the hands of Molech and offer him there. So it wasn't just the carcasses of bulls and goats that were in this valley. This wicked valley. But this kingdom that's coming, Jeremiah says, will overcome that idolatry. And to a large degree, that form of idolatry stopped in Babylon. When everything was stripped away from Judah and the royals were carted off and everyone was taken into captivity, there was a resolve that kind of grew during that 70 years in captivity that said, we're never going back there again. We'll never offer sacrifices to false gods again. And when you look at post-exilic Israel, largely that's true. There was never a coordinated effort for formalized idolatry like that. Except that there was. Matt's talked about this as he's walked through uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the rise of the prominence of the scribes. They were intent. We're never going back there. So we're going to make sure that we obey the law of God. And they completely missed the purpose of the law of God. And so they thought, we're going to make sure. So we'll add buffer rules around the precepts of the law of God to make sure that we don't ever accidentally, accidentally violate God's law again and go into captivity. Except that they did. They violated God's law by misunderstanding and misrepresenting it. And the idol was no longer a thing of stone, but it was in their hearts. The idol was their own self-will. But even then, the promise is that this idolatry will be conquered. How? He says that the law will be written on your hearts. 
And we have even more because they have the promise and the realization and acts as Cody read this morning that the spirit of the living God now dwells within us. So it not only eliminates and overcomes this idolatry, it guards us by the very presence of God. The next boundary that we see is that Brook Kidron. We're just walking back through the boundaries. Brook Kidron was a place of judgment. So this kingdom will expand and overcome judgment and destruction. Every single time you come across Kidron, the Kidron Valley, the Brook Kidron, the fields of Kidron, is always, always in reference to judgment. Every time in the Old Testament and the one time... In the New Testament that it's referenced. John 18.1. We're told what resides in the Brook Kidron or beside the Brook Kidron. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Jesus Comes and he enters into the place of judgment, the place of destruction. And you can play out that scene in your mind knowing what that place is, and it makes more sense. It begins to clarify what Jesus is saying to the Father. Jesus bears our judgment as he brings in this new covenant. This covenant, this kingdom expands and overcomes. The judgment and destruction that comes with rebellion. That's a wonderful, wonderful covenant. A wonderful promise. And we can just take that. We can sit around and we can talk about it. And just make a little commune. And not ever have to share with anything. Anyone, anyone, anything that we've ever heard. Right? Nah. Nah. Because that's not the nature of this kingdom. Because we're not done with the markers, are we? We got another one. The horse gate. What in the world? The horse gate? So in this new kingdom, we all get a pony, right? That sounds horrible. (laughs) Remember, this is the place where the king, the king rode his horses out to battle. Now, you may not be able to track this, okay? Because we live in a culture in which our leaders are pansies. And they send other people to fight their battles for them. Not so here. The king went out to battle. You know what was so egregious about David and Bathsheba? That David was at home when he should have been at battle. That's why he fell into the trap of Bathsheba. The king mounted his steed and didn't just ride out in the midst of the army. He led the army out of the horse gate to conquer the enemy. So too is this new covenant kingdom. The king rides out to conquer And I want you to notice the direction of motion. He rides out toward the east, which is significant. Throughout the Old Testament, you see this picture that that moving away from God goes eastward. 
In Genesis 3.24, he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the Tree of Life. He pushes them out toward the east, and they wander away eastward. Genesis 4.16, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Genesis 13, So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. They separated from each other. Now surely, not every time east is mentioned in the Old Testament is it a reference to moving away from God. But contextually, every time that's mentioned there, they're showing, they're making a concerted, intentional move away from God. Jerusalem had an east gate. Intentionally situated on the east to symbolize that they were going to conquer that which was opposed to God. The temple had an east gate that led to the outer court, the place where uh, you were the least clean within the temple grounds. Symbolizing that you were needing to come westward in order to be brought into the presence of God. The blood that was sprinkled on the altar was sprinkled on the east side of the altar to symbolize and show that, that wickedness and that rebellion. Everywhere that we see this intentional movement of east is east is moving away from God. West is coming toward God. And so we have this wonderful promise in Psalm 103. This great declaration of God's love in forgiveness of sin. He says he does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I used to wonder, what's so special about something that's as far as the east is from the west? Because if you're a smart aleck like me, you think, well this is east and the farthest place westward is right here. That's not very far. But the picture that is being painted in the psalm is that God's forgiveness of sin, his remembrance of it, is as far as the wickedness that drove you away from him is from the nearness of his presence. They don't compute. So this kingdom, this covenant is going to expand and conquer its enemies. It's going to overcome. It's going to exercise absolute and total dominion. But notice, notice what marker is missing. You're talking about a new Jerusalem, right? A new city. And what's missing? It's not even mentioned. There's no temple. Why is there no temple in this new covenant? Because you... With the indwelling of the Spirit of the living God, you are the temple. Do you see how great this covenant promise is? And then he wraps a bow on it. And he gives two promises. The kingdom, this covenant, shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Because he's going to go out and he's going to conquer. And he's going to that make, make that which is common sacred. And this covenant, this covenant kingdom, will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore. Forever. Forever. Now listen, that's not true of physical Israel, is it? Because they got plucked up by Babylon in 598. 
They got sent back to Jerusalem and plucked up again. And now they're conquered by Rome by the time we get in the first century. And then they get plucked up again, even more, in 70. It's not national Israel, folks. Something better. It's the one true nation of God that he has set aside for himself as a people that he has drawn to himself. We are the ones that will never be plucked up. This people never be plucked up, never be taken away. We will be sacred to God forever. We will be set aside to God forever. And we will never be drawn from his hands. That is the covenant that Jeremiah promises. This new new covenant that we talk about, we often stop there in verses 31 through 34. The law is going to be written on our hearts, sins forgiven. It's about much more than a personal internalization of the kingdom. By its very nature, this covenant is intended to take and exercise dominion over the nations. Christ, the victorious king, has conquered is conquering and will conquer. Christ's victorious people have conquered, are conquering, and will conquer because of the Christ who leads them into battle, out of the horse gate, into the wilderness, overcoming their enemies. The kingdom has been established. It is being established and it will be established. This is the covenant that we come together to renew at the table every single week. It's not just that Jesus loves me, this I know. That's absolutely true. But Jesus has conquered, is conquering, and will conquer. And I will be part of that conquest as his servant. Amen? Our Father, we thank you that we have this privilege of this covenant. May we go out into the nations, into the wilderness... With you as our king leading us into battle. And exercise the dominion that you have established for us. We praise you. That in your word there is truth that is so profound, so glorious. That it causes us to tremble at the thought of it. Teach us to love and cherish these things more and more. And to rejoice in the depths and the riches of your glorious grace that's revealed to us in Christ. We praise you that we are participants of this new covenant. And we come to the table now to renew that covenant together. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.